the presenting sponsor of Top Docs is Netflix. From director Laura McGann, The Deepest Breath captures the gripping mix of destiny and danger at the heart of two athletes' undeniable bond and offers a never-before-seen glimpse into one of the most dangerous sports on the planet. The Daily Beast calls the documentary heart-stopping, expansive, and intimate. Watch The Deepest Breath, now on Netflix. Welcome to Top Docs. I'm Mike Merrill. Today, I'm speaking with Fisher Stevens about his four-part documentary series on Netflix, Beckham. As you might expect, this series traces the life and career of soccer star and all-around mega-celebrity, David Beckham. Stevens is probably best known to the general public for his acting on stage and screen. I remember him all the way back in 1984, beguiling Joe Morton on the A-Train in the John Sayles film, The Brother from Another Planet. Most recently, he played PR hack Hugo Baker on Succession. But he's had a long career as a director and producer, including producing a number of documentaries like Once in a Lifetime, Tiger King, and the Oscar-winning The Cove. Some of the most fun parts of this engaging documentary involve the interviews, especially those conducted with David while he gathers honey or makes a cup of cappuccino. Fisher is there, just off camera, engaging with David in an easy yet sometimes just slightly challenging way. Having played alongside the likes of Brian Cox, maybe it's not a surprise that he can hold his own with this big personality. If you enjoyed this conversation, please do subscribe to the pod. Also, follow us on Twitter or Instagram at TopDocsPod. And now, my conversation with Fisher Stevens about his new documentary series, Beckham. Fisher Stevens, welcome to Top Docs. Thank you. You and I are both Americans. We're about the same age. And I really came to soccer late in life, largely as a result of my three kids who are all teenagers now, but they started playing at, you know, three or four back in ASO, Brooklyn, and then in clubs and school. But when I try to explain to them, when I was growing up, there's almost no organized soccer at any level, like professional was really, my high school didn't have a team. When I tell them this, they're, well, they're bored, but they're also disbelieving. And I really feel like I come to it, soccer now is kind of a foreigner. It's an exotic beauty to me. I know this isn't even your first soccer or football documentary. What's your relationship to the game? And you know, how does it affect how you tell this story? Well, my high school had a soccer team, Brooklyn Friends. I did not have any interest in playing. I played on the softball team. I was not interested in it at all. I started watching World Cup around in my 20s, started really digging the World Cup. I started a film company in my 30s, and we were pitched a uh, film on the New York Cosmos. Looking back at the 70s, when Pele, Beckenbauer, and Giorgio Canaglia played for New York Cosmos. That was cool, but I wasn't like a Cosmos fan, but I was a logo fan. I, I remember like I had Cosmos t-shirt. I loved the, the branding. And I loved New York back in the 70s because I moved here in 77 as a child. And my partner in my film company at the time said, look, let's do this film. But if it sucks, you have to make sure you fix it. Ironically, the guy that produced Beckham, John Batsik, was the guy that brought me that film. Batsik had just won the Academy Award that year that he pitched us the Cosmos for a different film. And I thought, oh, I'll trust this guy. This, I like documentaries. I don't know anything about them. 
So he delivers the film and it is a true piece of shit. My partner's like, you better fix it. And I was like, John, this, you got to help me, man. I don't know what I'm doing. And he goes, well, it's not that bad. I go, it sucks, man. He goes, well, you're right. We can make it a lot better. So let's do it. So John and I became friends and embarked on remaking this film. And while remaking this film, I was like, this is, I, not only do I love soccer, I love documentaries. And so that got me into both things, soccer and documentaries. John would take me, because we, we were editing some in England. So he took me to some Chelsea games. Yeah. And I'd never been to a professional British Premier League game. I was like, Gee, this is the this is incredible. The fans, the beer, the chants, the singing. You got a guy from the Ivory Coast, a country I barely heard of, is the star of this DDA Drogba, who was the most elegant, graceful, beautiful player I'd ever seen in my life since Pele in our documentary, which is footage. But now I was watching the guy right there. So that was it, man. And then I just started falling in love with the Premier League and I was hooked. That was 2003. That was the year David Beckham left. He wasn't even playing in England. He was playing in Real Madrid. So I didn't know anything about that guy. We'd like to start with the first scene often. And here, I think it's a really great one. Just visually, it's interesting. We see David Beckham gathering honey. Um, his first, can we just talk about that beekeeper outfit he's wearing? It's like a designer version on the classic. Like this guy, he looks even sexy in a beekeeper outfit. With his initials, DB. Right, yeah. it's monogrammed. Yeah. So he talked about starting there. Why did you want to start there? Michael Hart, my brilliant editor, and I wanted to open every episode with Verite. We did not set out at all to make a Verite film, but we decided once I met David and I got the vibe of his places, we shoot in two of his houses, uh, his London house and his country house. I was like, this guy is very different than people think he is. So when I saw that monogram beekeeping outfit hanging in the mudroom, I said to Nicola, his partner, business partner, I said, does he wear this? And she's like, oh yeah, he actually keeps the bees. He gets the honey. And so I begged David, I'm like, David, please, I beg you, can we film you getting honey? And he's like, really? For the documentary? I'm like, yeah, please. <laughs> I thought, okay, it's going to open. Is it a hazmat suit? Like where, it, like it was like out of that movie, you know, that Dustin Hoffman disease movie. Uh, <laughs> I thought this is so visually cool in the countryside, David walking. And then the dialogue just, I mean, I'm, you couldn't write it, right? And I'll let the audience see it. So every episode opens today with Verite footage. Also, it's interesting because, as you noted, he has DB on him. It's about branding and promotion, right? You can actually buy this honey. And it, it's really a business. This is what's amazing about them is they're so good at this part of what they do. I guess you can't. You, you, when we filmed, you couldn't buy the honey. He would just give it away. He was giving it away. But now, by the way, no shit. It is good. That's good it honey. And, and by the way, they chose Victoria's name, which I think is also telling. They went with DB sticky stuff, just so they you know. Did. Okay. Okay. That's great. I'm sure he'll turn it into something. But my goal had nothing to do with that. My goal was yeah. to show the world this guy. I, I wanted him to play Lego. To, you know, he, he does Lego too. That was my other idea to, to film him doing Lego because he, he is a master. He could be on Lego Masters. That'll be another episode. Right from the beginning, 
I'd like to talk about you in the film because, you know, a lot of directors completely edit their voices out. We only hear the answers. We don't hear the questions. On the other hand, there's the Michael Moore influence school where you're a full character. Here, it's interesting because we hear your voice. In fact, it sounds in many cases to me, it sounded like you were probably mic'd up at the moment. We see your hands briefly at an angle when you're taking getting a cup from uh, from no. David, but you're not fully on screen. And yet, I think you're a real presence. Say. We get some sense, I don't want to say judgment's too strong a word, but your point of view, you're familiar, you're funny. Can you talk about how you wanted to present yourself here? You know, it's, it's really delicate, right? When you're the filmmaker, how much you go in. I wanted the audience to feel like I am them. Yeah. And I felt like I could infuse a bit of humor, not just from me, but from David. Like David and I had a good rapport and I wanted the audience to know that I wasn't coming at this with much of a history being an American. Yeah. And I think what David hired me, one of the reasons he hired me was there is such a perception of the Beckhams in England. He was looking for someone who wasn't English to make this film because I didn't have that baggage. I mean, I did have baggage of Brand Beckham and I didn't originally want to do the movie because of that. But I quickly doing my research realized this guy, if he doesn't tell me what to do and she doesn't tell me what to do, there's a great movie here. If I can tell the story the way I want to tell the story, me and my team, then there's a great movie. And they agreed to that. But keeping my presence. So it was a constant like pulling back or putting in. I did mic myself on purpose every interview because I liked the idea of interacting with David but not seeing me. You'll see in episode three, I'm on camera for one little bit, but other than that, I'm, I'm not, but I am a presence and I think it, it works, but I'm trying to be the audience and the naive American about certain things because sometimes he did say stuff to me. I'm like, what? That's fucking crazy. And then sometimes, you know, I want to, you know, I'm not Michael Barbaro. I don't know if you listen to the daily who's like, well, yeah. let me get this straight. And I love Michael Barbaro. I'm not taking away from him, but it wasn't that. I didn't need to do that, but I just wanted a little bit of sense. And I, I feel like I can loosen David up more if he knew that it wasn't only on him. Does that make sense? Oh, totally. Yeah, I get that. I get that. I really got the Americanness too. I, that really came through to me as well. So the first episode is called The Kick. And very early on, we see one possible kick that this could refer to, which is a young Beckham. I believe he's 21 at the time playing for Man United. He's on his own team's half. He recognizes that the opposing goalkeeper is too far out from his line, too far advanced, and he kicks it really from his side of the half line over the goalkeeper and into the net. How unusual is this? Up until that point, really never had been done. I think a couple people have done it since. Wayne Rooney, maybe. Tim Howard. Tim Howard, Tim Howard did it from yeah. his goal. Yeah. But that was a mistake. But yeah. yeah, it was highly unusual. It was, we even show Pele trying it and not making it. It was highly unusual because you have to have huge balls to, yeah. you know, you're one of 11 on a pitch. The ball is on your side of the pitch to have the balls to go, okay, it, Michael Jordan would do it at the buzzer, of course, or anybody would, but he was 21. He just moved into the starting lineup. It was like literally his, the first season where he was thinking, okay, I'm going to start. So he was also risking it. Like Ferguson would have crushed yeah. it. And he did try it again. You'll see in episode three at Real Madrid, he tries one more time 
and it actually goes over the net and he's it was close though but yeah that put him on the map that shows you who he was that shows you the courage the confidence the like i don't give a fuck i i am me i am who i am but that's also what i love about david is he has that and at the same time he's like i need to be loved i want to be loved that's what i kind of was always juggling in my head as i was making this film who are you who is like this this is mm -hmm. like such a weird personality trait that i don't know many people who have it especially many people who are that famous and you know after the kick you take us on a brief tour of beckham's junior career and shows meeting of the legendary manager alex ferguson and this relationship is really complicated right beckham calls him a father figure and yet ferguson really didn't love a lot of the things about david beckham that makes him the david beckham we know the endorsements the money the style ferguson wanted to run what of the players says a socialist commune and David wanted individual recognition as well. You talk about the complexity of that relationship. This is, a, again, the exact same point of what I'm making about David's complex personality is that he wants Ferguson to love him, but he will not alter his individuality for Ferguson no matter what, because in his heart, he believes that is who I am. And Ferguson had everybody basically conforming to him. And if they didn't, he'd get rid of them. Like we, we were going to interview Lee Sharp, who was a very handsome young footballer, a couple years older than David played when David played, but was older, like a starter, incredibly talented and would not listen to Ferguson, loved girls, loved drinking, loved going out. He was great, but Ferguson got rid of him. He had an okay career, but he it was by, by no means Beckham. But Ferguson still, even though David, you know, he put up with him and David pushed him, pushed the envelope. And you'll see in episode three, he, he pushes it too far and it finally boiled over. But David was still there for like 14 years, starting when he was a kid. And I think it's a very, you know, sportsmen and father figures are very common, obviously. And this relationship was very dear to David. And even when um, Sir Alex agreed to do the interview, so this is interesting. I haven't thought about this for a while, but I interviewed David many times and we were kind of going chronologically in the uh, interviews. But after um, my third interview, I was about to interview him for the third time. You know, we were still early on. And I said to him, oh, Sir Alex has agreed. We're going to interview him tomorrow. And my cameras were set up and he, and he goes, really? And then he starts talking for an hour. I didn't ask a question. He just starts talking about Sir Alex. It was like he was still playing for him. And it was incredible. And I don't think he'd expressed any of this in years. But just the fact that I was about to go talk to him, David felt like I've got to get this off my chest, man, before we... And, and he skipped way ahead to when he got sold. I'm like, all right, let's keep going, man. You're in the moment. The other super important relationship here is one that Sir Alex maybe isn't thrilled about is with Victoria Adams, Posh Spice, and the Spice Girls. Again, a very important relationship in his life. Your wife always is, but wow. In this case, they're an incredibly dedicated couple. The attraction is interesting. Of course, they're these incredibly beautiful, glamorous people. But there's also this interesting thing, I think, around that, that you've run into around the fact that she sees them both as working class. Now she says, then, well, we're working people. And David, you know, calls her on this. But it turns out that she grew up riding the fancy cars that David eventually wanted. Her dad, I think he started out, he and it actually owned like what we would call a hardware store. Yeah. And then 
I think he owned a couple of them and was very successful. So he bought a Rolls Royce. So owning a store is very different than being a stove fitter, which David's dad would literally go into hotels and into restaurants and he'd go on his hands and knees and open up the stoves and fix the stoves. The mom was a hairdresser. And once she had children, she would literally, as we say in the movie, she, she had one of those chairs with the hair dryers in the kitchen. And at night, the women, they would come to the house and she would do their hair. So they worked six, seven days a week. Victoria's mom, I think, was more of a homemaker. They were new money. It wasn't like she came from old money. I, I think her dad was the first person in that family to kind of have a big house. David grew up in a house. Did you see the dad in the office with the jerseys? That was David's bedroom, that tiny room. I mean, it's like almost only a bed could fit in the bedroom. That's how he grew up. His sisters lived in the next room, which was super tiny. And originally I was very into the class, making a sort of an England story about class and working class England mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. David's background. And I, I actually had a 20 minute other film that you haven't seen that is about working class England, the lower leagues, how difficult it is to make the, the top league, Premier League, because I was really interested in that. Unfortunately, that didn't make the movie, but it, it is a big part of being English, right? The class system, much more so than the way you and I grew up in America. I was fascinated by that. Victoria definitely grew up in a much bigger house, much nicer car. But Victoria, as she says, she had her own money. She didn't marry David because he yeah, was yeah. a baller. She was much more famous than David was when they got together. You do a lot of interviews. I really like that sometimes the camera seems a little, seems more static and sometimes it seems to move a little bit more. But one thing that really caught my eye was a device that you use. We've talked a bit elsewhere about some of the innovations that we have now. Errol Morris uses mirrors. We were talking about to Davis Guggenheim about how he used what he called like a double lens to interview Michael J. Fox. Here you have this kind of amazing super close-ups where it appears that the subject, David, his father, David Edward or Ted, Diego Simeon seem to be watching an important game. Their yeah. eyes are shifting a little bit. Sometimes they, we see like a little bit of the image transposed. I didn't know if that was truly a reflection or if you had superimposed it later. Can you talk about what we're seeing here? It's because it's really effective. Well, thank you. I mean, yeah, God, I love those. We call them eye directs. They're watching the, the games that we're talking about generally. Like now, like when I, you see that moment we have of Eric Cantona when he sees, oh my, I mean, like he hasn't watched that in so many years. He's like, we played wonderful football. Like I wanted to capture the essence of the moment and them seeing it. And you can see the eyes and you sort of see into their souls and then you can see their young souls reflecting back. I superimposed certain, the images they were watching sometimes on their face. Sometimes I didn't. We do this in every episode. And honestly, like seeing David like that, I wanted to break him down and the beauty of his angles and his face. I wanted to get rid of it all and just focus on who he is and him watching himself or watching those moments. Again, like for me, documentary, the trying to get into the truth of who these people are is the key. And trying to get to the essence of who David is and who Victoria is was my goal. Those helped me, I think, do that, especially with David, especially with his dad, bringing back those memories. And just even if you don't say anything, you get a moment of their real, true souls. It seems uh, partly, I think, because their attention is somewhere else. They're not putting on a 
uh, face. Uh, There's someone in front. You know, it's like they're right there. It's so vulnerable. Yes, vulnerability. I know. I often wonder, you know, we tried to do it. It wasn't easy, you know, to find the spots all the time because of the storytelling. And our movie moves really quickly. So we use those as beats to kind of, okay, now we're going to get into your soul for a second. You know what I mean? Yeah, I love doing those. And I would have done more of them, but sometimes the subjects we didn't have time for, we, we tried. Another thing I think it's hard for Americans to fully understand is the importance of international play. It's as important or more important than the league matches. Sometimes you play as a team, sometimes you play for your national team. And Glenn Hoddle, more on him later, builds a whole English team around Beckham, uh, who's just this great midfielder, who's great at scoring, yes, but also passing the ball. What happens in the game is he gets a little extra attention. He's the young star. He gets some like, extra attention on the field and he retaliates. He kicks uh, Diego Simeone and gets a questionable red card and dismissed from the game. And, and then England loses to Argentina. It's a whole national rivalry going on there. A couple of things here. One of it's it just, it's hard again for us to understand, but he goes away for a little bit and he comes home to a nation where the entire nation he feels hates him. The entire nation. Everyone knows who he is. Everyone hates him. And despite our kind of cliches of British reticence, they seem very willing to express it openly to him, often to his face, to his family's face. And then he has to go up in front of tens of thousands of people for 90 min plus minutes at a time and be jeered and attacked and abused. Can you just talk about it? Just the experience that it must have been for him. This is one of the shocking things that I discovered while making the film because I was in America because I didn't understand England's real passion for football, soccer, football. I couldn't believe the abuse that he took from every away fan for years, two years, really. It was incredible. And we didn't even say all the things that people would say to Victoria if she was at a game or David's mother or David's father. I mean, you got a sense. You certainly get a sense. But the abuse, that's what I'm saying. Like, how does he do it? Then he has the greatest season of his career. That season is able to block it out. His team wins the treble, which makes England, except Manchester fans, hate him even more. Hate him even more. Winning the treble, they hated him. It was like oil on the flames, man. Gasoline on the flames. So it just made him play better. I don't know how the fuck he did it. He has a steel temper. I mean, he's like, a, he's just like a focus, 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 focus. So that was one of the things that blew me away about Beckham and the fact that he was able to not only survive that, but perform so well. And by the way, he had a great year the next year too. But even the next season, every time he touched the ball, boo, boo, your wife takes it up the arse, da, 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 you know. And yet he just, he persevered. While I was watching the brief account of Beckham's early years in episode one, I came away feeling, oh, I think something's missing here. And it was only really well into episode two that I understood that not only was something missing, but that in fact, you had deliberately held it back. Episode one shows us kind of the rise of Beckham's incredible skills. But it didn't really reveal what drove him, I think. And here in episode two, about a third of the way through or so, you really show us. And then it revolves around Beckham's father, who wanted his son not just to be a great footballer, but to play for Man United, amazingly. Wow. 
And, you know, one detail that sticks out that is his father has 13 to 1400 of his games on film. Can you talk about the importance of his father in, in who Beckham became? Well, it's so interesting you said that. So I have that section in episode one mm -hmm. originally, right? And I was like, it's too obvious for me to put it here, right? It's just, that's where you're going to expect it. I wanted you to feel what you felt like. I wanted you to feel like I still am not sure what, how this guy got so good, what makes him. The father relationship until he met Sir Alex, it was everything to David. Sir Alex became Ted in a way. Sir Alex, because David really wanted, to, like I'm saying, David really wants to impress everyone. He wants you to, he wants to be loved. But he's always going to be an individual. And David's dad, to his credit, was very strict and very hard on him, but he always let David be David. He let him dress the way he wanted. Even as a kid, he would dress a little weird. He let him keep his hair the way he wanted. Ferguson was the first guy to say, no, you can't wear white sneakers, boots. No. Why are you doing that with your hair? What are you doing? And at first, David conformed because he was terrified of Sir Alex. But then he's like, fuck it. I'm going to have to continue to be me. Because if I don't, I can't even perform on the pitch. And I think Ferguson sort of knew that up until the relationship got to a place that was untenable to fix. Yeah, I mean, that Fathers and Sons was a big part of our entire film. You know, and then Perez becomes this odd father figure to David, uh, the president of Real Madrid. And he likes to have those father figures in his life. And now I like to think of myself as David's father figure no i'm kidding not at all uh not um, at all joke david this kind of his father's training also i think gives us another gloss on the opening scene of the second episode so his father always emphasized control which could have been i propose as an alternate title to this episode control the ball but really of everything and in this regard this first scene of episode two is a very simple scene on the surface you know david makes you an espresso from this beautiful espresso machine he has then we pull back to reveal this restaurant grade kitchen and you note how clean it is. And it turns out that he stays up after everyone else is asleep, cleaning the stove and clipping the candles. And your remark on this is everything has to be perfect, it feels. And it really does feel like this seems to be a form of control too. Yeah. The reason I wanted to do that is he made me coffee the first day without cameras. And I was like, and then he was fucking fidgeting with everything in the kitchen. And I'm like, what are you doing? And he goes, well, you know, I just... Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then Nicola, who works with her, is like, David, that's David, his OCD. And I heard about his OCD, but I, I was watching him like he was nuts. So again, like with the bees, I'm like, David, please, can I film you making coffee? I just want to open it up with you making me coffee. And we just have a little discussion about your compulsion of clean. And, and he's like, no, no. And I was like, come on, man. There's a documentary on you. And he's like, okay, okay, okay. And like without even missing a beat, the guy, like I pull out a chair and he starts straightening the chair back. He doesn't even know he's doing it. And then you'll see episode four, there's a big payoff to his OCD at the end. That's what I mean. He's very complex and he's not what you would think at all. You, you do some really nice work showing his father's influence through some of the mixing of images. So and editing, you show the young Beckham, we see him on the field, we hear his father's hectoring, and then you interspersed embedded in film from the period of the crowd jeering him. And he really says, in fact, that without his father's influence, he wasn't sure he would have been able to make it through this period. His dad was really hard on him. I mean, again, we have another 10 minute scene about his dad. Come on, David, like the Agassiz dad. Not as bad, but 
very hard on Dave. The mom said I wouldn't have been so hard on him, but the dad, Ted, really prepped him. He prepared him for this life. And so did Sir Alex Ferguson. The discipline of being a Manchester United youth team player into the first team really prepared David to deal with what you saw in the first two episodes and what you're going to see in episodes three and four, which I don't know how he didn't become an alcoholic, drug addict, wife beater. He kept it together and kept it together with grace, dignity, and continues to be successful in the signing of Messi in Miami. I had to reopen, basically reopen the fourth episode to, to get a shot of Leo playing his first game because we were done. The real things that you're pointing to here, as I draw some extrapolations of sports in our own day, as we watch, for example, David, now a minority owner of Inter Miami, welcome this incredible talent, but also the incredible marketing juggernaut now, which is Leo Messi. This tension between player and endorser and team first or team only and the balance we now see between the individual and the team. David was really on the forefront of that, I think. Yeah. But I will say, you could say he's a minority owner, but I would say he's more than a minority owner. He, with the two Moss brothers, like they run that whole team. He told me when we started that he's been working on getting Messi to play mm. for. And I was like, yeah, MLS, Miami, really? Okay, buddy. Okay. And by the way, like right as we like basically lock picture, he goes, we got Messi. I'm like, oh my God. Anyway, <laughs> well, look, I would say this is a big thing in David's life. And we could have gotten maybe a little bit more into this. Uh, we did get into it, me and him, but in the film, yeah, like he is a great teammate. Every single teammate that we spoke to said he was a great teammate. Were there moments where he had to go fly off to Zurich to do a watch thing or whatever? Uh, yes. David will say, David did say, I never, ever, I always put football first. This was my other thing, but I knew I was going to be retiring at some point and I did have to keep preparing for that. So I'm sure that had to split him a little bit, but all of his teammates were very complimentary, except when he went to LA. And that is a great, mm. I think that's a really good section of our film when it seems like he may have not been the greatest teammate and he made a decision, a selfish decision that he admits, does abandon ship for a period, but then comes back and makes up for it. But that moment was, yeah, I think David admits it in the film. He says, you know, I might have been, that was maybe a selfish moment, but he juggled that, he balanced that, I'm sure. And then I'm sure it was not always easy for him. Yeah, Grant Wall, who we just lost recently during the World Cup, has a great book about the period in LA. Let me ask, ask a question around the relationship with Victoria, because I think that this becomes a, you know, a harbor in the storm for David during it all. You have this great footage of him right after the kick, the second kick, where he goes to see Victoria in New York. It's almost like this Spice Girls den, you know, and I think it's Sporty Spice calls it the, the Spice Cam. And they're very cheerful. Hi, David, you know, and it's very upbeat. And I just love the way they're kind of good feelings are pointing off what we know are his really terrible feelings, though he's not expressing that. We know it's there, but he's not showing it. I mean, we were so lucky to have that footage. They were like this oasis for him. At that moment, 
I think nobody really knew David that much in America. So he could walk around the streets and he wouldn't be bothered. Victoria couldn't, but David could. I think it was really a moment where he may have thought, oh, I may have gotten away with this. Like maybe, maybe everyone will forget it when I come back to England. Cause you know, they had this nice two weeks in New York and then little did he know when he lands, they're just like vultures all over him. But the Spice Girls were also for Victoria, for her emotional and mental health. I think they were really at that moment before the, things went a little crazy for the Spice Girls and they broke up. But I think that it was a safe haven, a safe harbor. And uh, Victoria had, she says in the film, like, I was part of five, so it was easier. David was yeah. all alone out mm -hmm. there, just him. It's really interesting to, to see them together. You know, it's been 27 years. 26, 27 years. They were yep. kids. They were kids, you know. David was 21. She was 22 when they, when they started seeing each other. So it's kind of unbelievable. It seemed to push them together, right? This could have torn a lot of families apart, but they really seemed to come together. And whenever I see a photograph or some video of David and them, it, they're almost always with their kids. There's this great video, you know, them watching Salt Bay dress their steak. They are a really dedicated family. Did you experience that? Yeah. I mean, a lot of my scheduling was around David's family. That was it. And obviously his branding engagements and his Miami engagements, but it was really good to see how important they are to him. He says in the movie, like when they were younger, I wasn't always around because I was playing football. But as soon as that ended, like he's made that a priority to take his daughter to school and take his younger boy to school before he finished. And um, they're together quite a bit. Brooklyn lives in LA and, you know, he has his own baggage now. With Anytime you go on social media and become a social media star, you're going to have to like, or social media presence, you're going to have to take the good and the bad with it. Brooklyn grew up his whole life being scrutinized and being on camera, as you see in our film. And yet, you know, he still puts himself out there. I think it's interesting that Romeo, who's playing football, he's very shy. And I think he tries to avoid that stuff. Cruz is the, the youngest boy is phenomenal, really funny, really impressive. I got to hang with him more than the others. That kid is definitely going places. I can tell you. And Harper's just really sweet. And David tries to spend as much time because she's the one still living at home. Cruz is at home too. So both of them are pretty much at home. So I think he tries to spend as much time as he can with them. Thanks for joining us today. And thank you for this documentary. I can't wait to see the next couple of episodes. It's a real testament, these first two episodes, to persistence and resilience in the face of adversity. Obviously, someone with great talent, most of us will never match. And yet I think there's still something to be learned from his dedication to hard work and family. So thank you again. I really enjoyed the documentary and I can't wait to see the rest of it. I can't wait for you to watch it. And thanks for having me on. And who knows, I'm excited to do another sports one because sport is fun. Sport is, everyone can relate, you know, in one way or another. You just need the right, you know, some of them can be not the most exciting. So I was lucky that I got this guy and some of them, you know, how about Deion Sanders? That'll be the next. Yeah, match. no, that's a, that'd be a good one. Sure. I'm sure there's a bunch of docs being made about him right now, but wow, that's a story. Anyway, that'll be our next topic. Do you have a hidden gem, a documentary that you don't think gets the attention it deserves? I have a lot of them, but the first one that comes to mind, which is one of my great inspirations as a filmmaker, is called Burden of Dreams by Les Blanks. And Les Blank, just in general, massive unsung 
hero, or he's well known in the doc world, but to me, he's a master. Burden of Dreams, which he was filming during the making of Werner Herzog's Fitzcarraldo. It's just a masterpiece. You're just immersed in the Amazon jungle in the late 70s, what they went through and how crazy Herzog was, who now is a great master documentarian himself, or maybe always was. I recommend everyone to see Burden of Dreams, Less Blank.